We've all spent more time with family lately. It can feel like old times, but your mind is on the future too and what you can do to shape it. At Sandy Spring Bank, we work with clients to help them grow and protect their money with wealth management, trust services, and insurance so they can enjoy today and ultimately pass along their wealth. We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about your dreams. Visit sandyspringbank.com slash wealth. Wealth and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed, and may lose value. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Hello, hello, and welcome back, friends, to the Space News Pod. This is a, I guess it's three days a week podcast, uh, video podcast, but I do a regular daily podcast every single day. That's what daily means, I guess. Uh, so if you like regular podcasts, go to any podcast platform and search for Space News Pod. You'll find me. So. The first order of business is to say thank you because I got a new Patreon patron yesterday, or was it this morning? It was, it was early today. MPE, thank you for becoming a space cadet. Thank you for becoming a patron, helping out the show. You're amazing. And I can't do it without you guys. So anybody who's listening, anybody who's watching right now, thank you so much for your patronage just from being here. I do appreciate it. Now, I have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Space News Pod. Uh, Twitter is at Space News Pod. Instagram, Space News Pod 1. Facebook, Space News Pod. So check all those things out. I want to get that stuff out of the way. And then we can go with the news. Let's get into this. Is China 
China is doing some stuff. They're doing some testing. And they tested a new technology. It's, it's new to them, I guess. It's not new to spacefaring civilizations. We've used this kind of technology before on Mars. We've landed rovers with these kind of technologies before. But China has been experimenting with inflatable reentry and descent technology. So what is this? What is inflatable reentry and descent technology? It's airbags, right? We've used it on our rovers that we've sent to Mars before. NASA has done that. Basically, it's airbags all around the landing craft. So if it has a, you know, like a parachute entry, right? Maybe there's not a, a uh, burn coming in, right? So maybe there's no, no burn to land. There's a parachute, possibly. Yeah, okay, so that'll slow it down a lot, right? And then after the parachute, it would probably not go slow enough, more than likely it's not going to go slow enough, without boosters, right? Without thrusters, the thing wouldn't be going slow enough to actually land on the surface of Mars. So what happens? You have a rover that's encased, it's like in a, I, I guess it would be, a bubble of airbags. I guess that's the best way to explain it. You know, like bubble wrap. The stuff that you get when you get a box shipped to you from Amazon. Same concept. There's big airbags around the rover. And when it lands, it bounces. Bounces and bounces and bounces and bounces. Until uh, it stops bouncing. Until the initial force stops. And the rover is at a place where it just doesn't go anymore. Now, when that's the case, um, the airbags have saved the rover. All the technology in the rover is safe because the airbags bounced all the, the initial force from the landing forward and up, as opposed to just smashing down into the ground. China's been working on that. They've tested a space vehicle. Thank you for those super hearts. Rachel Rich, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Um, they've been trying this technology out on, it looks like a flying saucer, basically. Basically, like a, basically a flying saucer. And it was a success. They have thick airbags that are components of the IRDT system. Uh, and they validated that there's a buffer of protection between the actual craft and the landing zone. So, China was successful, and they want to do more experiments like this in the future. Right? The U.S. conducted experiments like this in 2014 and 2015 on low-density supersonic decelerators, which is a technology similar to China's new technology that they're working on now. Um, and they landed spacecraft and large robots on the Mars surface because of it. There's a lot of technical issues. There's a lot of technical stuff going on. It's not just airbags. You know, you can't just put a bunch of airbags around something and expect it to work. It doesn't work like that. It requires spacecraft to use different kinds of landing methods and different celestial bodies. So it really depends on how much gravity the planet has, how much atmosphere the planet has, what kind of drag coefficient 
it's going to have as it enters the atmosphere and enters into its landing cycle. So the uh, amount of air in these bags and also how thick the bag is is super important. So China's working on this technology and they're looking to land on the moon and Mars with this kind of technology. More than likely, they're not going to land humans with airbags. I mean, it's a possibility. But nobody really wants to bounce around a bunch when you land. I mean, if we could do it with Apollo, why can't we do it now, right? So there's no reason to land people with this kind of technology. It's something like you land a rover another celestial body. You land a rover on the moon, you land a rover on the Mars, on the Mars, you land a rover on Mars, or you land supplies for your rocket men and women get to other planets and other uh, worlds. So that's what these airbags are for, and that's what China's going to be using them for. It's going to be amazing, and I can't wait for China to continue doing these experiments. Um, now, okay, so I have a, there's a little side note here. Okay, so this isn't a, this isn't quite a news thing as a science thing. My friend and I were talking on the phone earlier today. And she asked me, you know, the, the question was, how do astronauts poop in space? Okay, so that was funny. There's different ways to do that. But what really intrigued me, there's a lot of information about astronauts pooping in space. But there's not a lot of information about what she asked next. What she asked next was, what happens when somebody cries in space? And I said, well, I don't know if anybody is, you know, has been really that sad in space. <laughs> and, she, and I said, well, maybe it's an emotional thing. Like you get to see the earth for the first time and you start crying. It's, a, it's an emotional response. You start welling up. Your eyes start welling up and tears start forming. So what happens to those tears? Because in regular gravity here on Earth, the tears flow down, right? They flow down your face. And if you're crying a lot, they flow down all of your face. Now, if you're in space, though, astronaut Chris Hadfield explained that the eyes produce tears in space, of course, but it isn't nice. It's not a good experience. Tears don't flow downwards out of your eye without gravity. So gravity pulls the tears down your face and out of your eyes. In that way, it washes away irritants. So all the stuff that's like gunked up in your eyes when you're crying or before you're crying, that stuff gets washed away. But when you're in space, tears don't have any gravity to wash the stuff away. So what Chris Hadfield said was they conglomerate into a liquid ball that hangs out in your eye. And he said that space tears sting because there's no washing effect. When they build up enough mass, they'll finally break free from your eye and float around. But while they're in your eye, there's all that stuff in your eye still, right? There's all that stuff in your eye all the dust and whatever that's in your eye already, and that stuff's going to stay in there, and the ball is actually going to attract some of it. So that's what happens when you cry in space. The tears 
stay in your eyeball in a little uh little water pod i guess would be the best way to explain it in your eye that's crazy i didn't you know those are the things that you don't really think about like who thinks about that stuff i mean other than my friend kate because she's uh <laughs> she's a unique character let's just say that well what happens you know those are the kind of things that that are really interesting to me you know the weird stuff now what else is interesting this spacex starhopper starhopper is cool starhopper is part of spacex's larger initiative to get a giant spacecraft to mars this giant spacecraft is called Starship, right? And Starship needs to have testing before it can actually get to the red planet, can actually get to the moon, can actually get to orbit. So Starship is going to uh, ferry Starlink satellites, which are SpaceX's worldwide internet satellites. So they need a big ship to do that. They need a huge ship to do that. Starship is that ship. So right now, Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy, Elon Musk said those will all be retired once Starship comes online. Now what they've been doing, they've been doing Starhopper tests. Starhopper is uh, it's a smaller version of Starship. One engine, one Raptor engine that produces 200 tons of thrust. Right? So... They do tests with the Starhopper to make sure that everything functions properly before, before they move it over to the uh, Starship test vehicles. Because right now, they're making Starship vehicles in Boca Chica, Florida, and they're making, or Boca Chica, Texas, and in Florida as well. So they're making these Starships two different places. Starship is going to be amazing. But Starhopper needs to be tested first. They've already done a few tests. The first test, tethered, went well. Right, so the first test was, you know, 20 meters, I believe, something like that. 20, 20 meters. 20 or 30 meters, somewhere around there. And then the next one, around the same. But it was untethered, right? And that untethered test didn't go too well. That untethered, untethered test kind of had a lot of flameage coming out of the top of it. Didn't really work out too well. Now they fix some stuff up. They change some things around. The next test, which was the next day, the next night, I should say, because they took the whole next day and all that night to um, fix up Star or Starhopper. And then the next night, successful test, about 30 meters up and across, right? So they went left and right. They made sure everything worked. And then they landed Starhopper back where it started. And there's a video of that. And I've showed that numerous times on the show. Um, but it's amazing that this actually works, right? So when you have these Starhoppers and they're doing their thing, they do a lot of testing. They have a lot of instrumentation available to them to find out what works and what doesn't. And when they're done with these tests, they move these components, the ones that work, over to Starship. 
Starship Mark One, Starship Mark Two, MK1, MK2, the prototypes that will begin flying in September and October of this year. So if there's a Starship launch, there's a Starship test in September, October, I want to go to it. How cool would it be to go down to Florida and watch the Starship test? This is, this is literally history in the making. This is one of those things that you're going to look back at. And even though like maybe it's not really your, your cup of tea, maybe this isn't like one of those things where this is your favorite thing ever. You know, like maybe you're not like a huge space enthusiast like myself, but it's pretty freaking cool to know that you were part of something it's literally going to change the way that humans interact in space. So just watching these tests, that's super important, right? Watching the Starship tests, watching the Starhopper tests. These are things that will change humanity if it all works out well. So if Starship figures, or if they figure out Starhopper first, which they're doing their next test, by the way, this Friday, and they're going to have a live stream of it. So I'm going to be live streaming their live stream with commentary um, as much as I can. So that's going to be on Friday at some point. We don't know exactly what time, but they might do a couple tests. We're not sure. But once that's completed, Starship, here we come. And then that's all going to happen in September and October. That's very soon. FAA permits have already been issued for uh, this Starhopper test. FAA, FAA has posted NOTAM restricted airspace around SpaceX's Boca Chica site for Starhopper no earlier than this Friday. So it's going to be an untethered test. 250? What is it? 200 or 650 feet, 200 meters up. So that's 650 feet six-story building almost seven-story building and then they're going to fly it to another pad just to make sure that everything works right it's going to be very impressive very impressive indeed and this thing isn't small like this thing is pretty freaking large and it takes uh what is it 200 tons of thrust for one of those engines 210 200 tons of thrust that's crazy that's crazy and they have uh, an unlimited flight test, but limits to altitude of 25 feet above the ground level, or 25 meters, sorry, right now. So they're just waiting for the 200 meter FAA, or they were waiting for it, now they have it. So, well, they've restricted airspace, they're ready to go. And SpaceX will be doing the Star Hopper tests on Friday, and I will be there. I will be there to, uh, to tell you guys what's up. And if you don't get to watch the live stream, I'll have it on the podcast. You can do it. Uh, you can subscribe it anywhere that you get your podcast to search for Space News Pod, or you can go to spacenewspod.com, um, and then you can get all the links there. So let's see what else is going on here with the with the space stuff. That was oh yeah, there's a cool thing. Okay, so this is another cool thing that I that I saw the other day. There's supernova dust that's been found on Earth. Think about that for a second. Supernova. 
exploding star. Stardust has been found on Earth. Astronomers melted a thousand pounds of Antarctic snow and found iron that likely fell to the ground as Earth passed through a cloud of supernova debris. So when these stars explode, it's super violent. When a star goes supernova, it excretes all this dust, whatever the star is made of, right? So iron, radioactivity, etc. So they went to Antarctica. And they went there because no one ever touches that place. It's very desolate. There's not much stuff going on in Antarctica that could ruin these kind of tests, right? So there's, it's very barren. They go there to search for meteorites and other materials that fall from the sky, and they sit undisturbed for, you know, hundreds of years, possibly. Thousands of years, I don't know. You know, depending on the snow and depending on, you know, how, how the snow moves around there. So hundreds of years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever. There is a lot of stuff up there. You can literally walk. I've watched documentaries on it. You can literally walk for miles picking up little meteorite chunks. Because there's nothing else up there. There's literally no humans. So you're the only people up there. And you're walking around, and you know you see these little tiny, light, tiny chunks of meteorites that have fallen to the Earth. But there's been a, a team of astronomers from Germany and Austria that made use of this preservation technique, and they collected over a thousand pounds of snow that have been laid down in the past 20 years. And after analyzing the snow for various dust and grains, they found that within this thousand pounds of snow they discovered a weird amount of iron 60. And this radioactive strain of iron 60, it told astronomers that the dust wasn't local. It didn't come from someplace on Earth. It came from outer space somehow. And they suspect it came from a supernova that exploded sometime in recent cosmic past. So, cosmic past. Um, millions of years. You know, that's not that long of a time as far as the cosmic past goes. 100,000 years, not that long ago for space. 100 years ago, it's a tiny, tiny blip. 100 years ago, it's a blip. 10 years ago, it doesn't even matter. So when you're, when you think about the time that you get to spend here, you get 100 years. If you're super lucky, you get 100 years. You might get 50. You know, you might have a heart attack at 50. You might make it to 70. But in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of the universe, that's nothing, man. That's nothing. So these kind of things, supernovas, 200, year, 200 million years old, things like that. Solar system, right now, it orbits the galactic center every 230 million years. And astronomers suspect that as the sun and earth traversed the neighborhood, the galactic neighborhood, that it's possible they plowed through a cloud of debris that the supernova left behind, which caused the material from that supernova to rain down on earth. And it could have rained down all over earth, 
but these astronomers found it in Antarctica because it's so barren up there. It's like a clean lab up there. So the same kind of iron has been found buried deep in sea as well, and in ancient rocks. And those were from millions of years ago. Uh, this is the first iron laid down in recent years, and it could shed light on exactly where and when the supernova that created this metal is from. So when they melted this thousand pounds of snow, they ran it through an instrument called a mass spectrometer, and they determined the precise chemical makeup of any materials that were inside of the snow. A thousand pounds of snow. That's a lot of snow. And this told them that not only was there iron in there, but this iron was iron 60. And it's a special kind of iron. They have different numbers of particles in the nucleus than normal iron that we find on Earth. It's radioactive. They're not stable with the number of particles, and at some point they'll decay into other atoms. For iron 60, it'll take 2.6 million years, about 2.6 million years, for half of it to decay into something else, making it a long-lived radioisotope. Right? So we have iron 60 that we found in Antarctica. We plowed through a supernova that exploded, but they don't know it's supernova, and they're working on that right now. They're working on where it came from. So space was an option, right? It's also common for the combination of these elements that were in the snow to occur when cosmic rays strike the dust that fills the solar system. But when that happens, there's a particular ratio, the iron, that science, um, you know, the scientists, sorry, expected. But this wasn't in this sample of iron. So they tested it and they tested it. They thought maybe it's from nuclear fallout, right? A power plant that blew up, something like that. And the wind from the power plant, the nuclear power plant, drifted this iron to Antarctica. But the amount of the iron 60 is negligible. And it can't, it can't explain the amount that the researchers found. They found a bunch of it. So they're going to do some more tests on this iron 60. They're going to do some on where it came from. They're going to try to pinpoint exactly where this Iron 60 came from. They know it came from a supernova. That's what they came up to. That it came from a supernova. It came from space. It's not here. It's not from here. It's from someplace else. Now, where exactly? They're not 100% sure. But they want to figure it out so I'll keep you up to date where they get the, uh, or where it comes from. Because that's going to be really cool to figure out exactly which supernova blew up, when it blew up, you know, which star it was, where it is, and, you know, how much it actually affected other parts of the Earth. It's probably not just in Antarctica. I mean, that... They found it in a thousand pounds of snow. So it probably hit all over the earth. So if they could do tests on other parts of the earth, 
and find out that this Iron 60 exists someplace along the same kind of timeline, then they can find out how big the explosion was. See how, I mean, because when supernovas explode, it's big. <laughs> and what do you think of big? It's not like a skyscraper big. I'm talking about like, you know, a thousand times the size of our sun. Like that's how far it goes out. And then farther and further and further, of course. But just think about that. We don't really know. We can't really comprehend how big that is. Right? Like we don't know how big a sun is. We can tell ourselves all that we want. That we know that a sun is, you know, X amount of Earths. But have you ever tried to walk 10 miles? It's a long distance. Now imagine a thousand Earths. You can't walk around the Earth. You die. You die. You, it's too far. You know, like you and me, we're just normal people. We would die. We wouldn't, I probably wouldn't even make it across America. I probably wouldn't make it like a quarter way across America. I probably, I'm in New York. I probably wouldn't make it to Ohio. <laughs> so I'm just saying, these things are gigundous, like the biggest. Hey, from Scotland, how's it going? How's it going? Solid success. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine walking across the earth. And then when you're done, think about doing that 100,000 times. That's the size of the sun. And when the sun explodes, kaboom, all that stuff gets scattered everywhere. And that's what happened when this supernova exploded and landed some of that stuff, the Iron 60, the radioactive Iron 60, on our planet. So if they look back in time all over the Earth, right? they look other parts of the Earth, and they find this Iron 60 someplace else, we know that it was a giant explosion. Maybe if they don't find it everywhere, maybe we just caught the edge of it. We're going to figure out over the next, I don't know, probably couple years it's probably going to take them to f probably 10 years to do all this to be honest with you yeah so let's go into another question that we got from one of our patreon patrons also you can sign up for patreon patreon.com slash space news podcast and maybe you will get your question answered on the air in front of the world and I will also shout you out on the show. So the question is, if we had special spacesuits, could we use them to go to the sun? The answer is no. <laughs> Just straight up no. No, no. We can't even make a spaceship without humans in it that can go to the sun. You know, we do have a spaceship right now that's orbiting the sun. But it's not that close. Let's see how far away it is right now. One second. Let's, let's see how far away this thing is comparatively to what we are to the sun. The Parker Solar Probe. Let's find out where this thing is. They just made... Uh, the year anniversary too on the 12th of this year or of this month 
Yeah. Two trips around the sun for Parker Solar Probe. Where is Parker? Let's do a little bit of research here. Because that's what we're here for, right? We're here for some science. January 19th, 2019, just 161 days. Let's see. Where's Parker Solar Probe? There we go. Okay, so it's circling the sun, of course. It's doing an orbit. It is 0.94 AUs from the sun. So it's near Earth right now. It's in between Venus and Earth right now. So it gets really close to the sun, though. So anyway, this probe goes around, orbits the sun around the Earth near Venus and goes back around. There's no way. There's no way we could create a, a suit. A suit that is able to withstand the heat of the sun. Just to make sure I get this right, the sun is 5,778K. It is super hot. We don't eat, like, that's so hot. <laughs> As a normal person, that's so hot. We can't even get close to it right now. No way we can make a suit. And why would you do that? <laughs> like, what, why would you do that, for one? What would be the point of sending yourself to the sun? Right, like, why would you want to put a suit on and then launch yourself towards the sun? I know people are crazy, right? People do crazy stuff. But, come on, man. If you're going to fly towards the sun, get close but don't go to the sun. There's no reason to go to the sun other than to study around it, study, you know, what it's made of, study solar storm, solar wind, etc. That's cool. Don't make a suit and fly yourself into the sun. That sounds silly. And you just burn up and die. We don't have the technology. We just don't. It's not a thing. We can't launch something into the sun and uh, have it not burn up. Sometimes when things come back to Earth, they burn up. You know, like a satellite. They're very, very gentle, um, very easy to burn up in the atmosphere, right? They're very fragile. Even though they're big, like they could be the size of a bus, but satellites, some of them, can burn up in the atmosphere very easily. So something like the, you know, uh, the space shuttle. If a couple of the tiles on the space shuttle were ejected, were destroyed on its way back in, the whole thing would burn up. You know, I know they have like a couple layers that are going to protect it, but the fact that it's so hot when you come into the atmosphere of the Earth because the friction, think about that, but that's nothing compared to the sun. So to answer your question, we cannot make a suit that will protect you from the sun's heat. Plus the gravity. Think about that. Like, all of our planets are affected by the sun's gravity. When you get close enough, you're going to get sucked in. Right? You're going to start orbiting. Then you're going to get sucked into the sun. You're going to die anyway. So you're going to get crushed by the gravity of the sun, probably. 
But if you, if you, I guess if you can make a suit that is able to protect you from the sun's heat, you can probably make a suit that can protect you from the gravity of the sun as well, from the crushing, smushing gravity of the sun. So in that regard, I mean, if we have that kind of technology, we probably have both. So I would say at this point, we do not have that technology. But it would be cool if we did. So we can't even get near the sun without it burning us to a crisp. <laughs> so anyway, if you want to help out, if you want to help out, go to patreon.com slash space news podcast. And I can answer your questions on the air. I think it's fun, by the way. We have about, we have four patrons. We just had another patron uh, yesterday, actually. It is MPE. Thank you for your patronage. Appreciate all of your help. You are amazing. Can't do it without you guys. So everybody else who's just watching the show, like if you're watching the show or listening to the show on the podcast, like you're awesome. That's all I'm going to say about that. Like without you guys, I'm nothing. Like I got, I got nothing. I'd be doing it anyway, but without your support, I can't do this. Um, I can, I'll continue to do the show, but without you guys showing up, it's more fun when we have a party. You know what I'm saying? It's more fun when there's more people around. So that's all I'm saying. So thank you, uh, Periscope, for all the help, too. I got a silver, right? I'm a silver person. I'm Periscope. I'm working towards platinum or whatever's next. I don't even know what's next. I just got to keep working at this. I got to keep pushing it. So, yeah, it's with, with all of your help, that is why doing this so if you get a chance if you like the show make sure to hit the follow because that really helps too just getting all those followers really help and thank you for those uh extra hearts today that's really amazing now there's something else that was cool too that i was asked the other day can we see the flagpoles on the moon the flags that we put there during apollo missions can we see them from the earth? The answer to that is no. <laughs> no, no, we can't. They're too far away. You know, they're, they're too far away. Uh, we need a giant telescope. We need a telescope. What is it? A hundred times bigger than what we have already. Something somewhere along there, because the, the flags are literally this big, they're four feet wide. They're in this range that you can see in my camera. It's too far away. We can't see the uh, we can't see the flags on the moon. But what we can see, and what we have seen, is the Apollo Eleven landing site from the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has taken photos of it. There is really cool stuff. So you can find the. Uh, Let's see, what, what did they find? Let me, let me look at this real quick. I want to make sure that I get this right. The lunar module. You can see the passive seismic experiment package, the PSEP. You can see the laser ranging retro reflector. And some other stuff. Oh, oh yeah, cover is in there. It's stuff like that. But you can't see the flags. It's, they're just too small. Even from something that's orbiting the moon, you can't see the flags. So, unfortunately, 
I'm sorry, you can't see the flags from the Earth. But I had a lot of people tell me that the moon landing was fake. I had a lot of people that troll out, and they think because you do a space show that you're going to freak out when they say that the Earth is flat or when they say that we haven't been to space or haven't been to the moon or can't get past the radiation belt. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's all I'm going to say. All right. All right, dude. You're smarter than all the, all the engineers, all the scientists that have done this before you. Because you read a couple articles on, on Google and you're, you watch a couple of YouTube videos. Sorry, bruh. It's like anti-vaxxers. Yeah, you read, a, you read a couple blogs. You watched a couple YouTube videos. You're also not a doctor. You're all, you also didn't go to school for this. You also didn't get the training. So, sorry, but... Doctor. <laughs> but it's funny. I get, I, get, I get trolled on Twitter all the time. I think it's hilarious. I just ignore them. So, anyway, my friends. I just went off on a little tangent there. And I apologize for that. Now, there's other cool stuff that's happening, too. So let me, let me tell you about, uh, where is this? The next thing. So Orion. So Orion is NASA's module that will land humans on the surface of the moon. Okay, so Orion is part of the SLS. And it's not going too well for NASA right now. SLS is behind schedule. They want to get to the moon in five years. They probably won't make it. I really want them to. I really want them to. I really do. I, I pull in for them. I push in for them. Come on, NASA, do this. Everybody wants this. But they're a little bit behind schedule. But they did have a test fire the other day, a very important test fire of the Orion service module engine. Uh, in White Sands test facility in New Mexico, the Orion's propulsion system uh, had a successful test firing. So the Orion module will be sending astronauts to the moon. Now we have a whole slew of stuff that's going to be happening on the moon during the Artemis missions, which is the next phase of moon to Mars. So the Apollo service module, um, it's going to house astronauts in between the Earth, and we're going to have a, a lunar outpost as well during the Artemis missions. The lunar outpost will be orbiting the moon. The Orion module will dock with that. The astronauts will be able to do things in this mini space station, Whatever they're going to do, drop off supplies, pick things up. You know, it's a kind of a way station in between the Earth and the moon. Hitch a ride on it until it gets to a certain point, and then launch yourself back down to the moon surface, and you'll be all good. Um, but the fact that these things are taking so long, the SLS is taking so long, Elon Musk, founder of SpaceX, says we can do it in two two years we can send stuff to the moon in two years when we get starship up and running so at the beginning of this podcast i talked about starhopper 
which will turn into a starship, basically. The test they're doing on Starhopper will allow them to make starship. Two years, Elon Musk said, hey, we can get to the moon before NASA. NASA wants to get there in five years. Elon said, if all goes well with Starship, he can send astronauts to the moon in four years, just on the other side of four years, before NASA can do it. And NASA said, sure, if you can do it, we're going to support you. We're going to hook it up. But Elon has to make sure the Starship works. Elon has to make sure that everything works well before he launches human beings onto the surface of the moon. So with Starship, they got to make money, right? They got to make money to do this stuff. And that's what Starlink is for. Starlink is the satellite internet company that they're going to pay the bills with. Because they can't just pay for it with NASA money. NASA money is great. Launching satellites is great. Launching things to the International Space Station, including crew members, is awesome, and it pays some bills. But if you want billions of dollars, billions with a B, you need Starlink. If we can get enough people signed up for Starlink, Elon Musk says that they can provide the money to get Starship fully funded, fully operational, and launched to the moon before NASA. So Starship, this is, this is a push, right? This isn't NASA doing this. This is a private company doing this all by themselves. The private company that Elon Musk runs that wants to send things to the moon. And because it's a private company, there's no red tape. Well, there's some red tape. I shouldn't say no. But there's very little red tape compared to what NASA has to go through. Everything NASA does. Giant government corporation. Lots of red tape. Lots of people involved. Have to go through five or six different departments to get something signed in order to have somebody else sign it. You know, it's, you know how it is. It's, if you work for a company, you know how it is. Especially a giant company. NASA is a giant company, basically. It's run by the government. So Elon says two years, we're going to get some stuff to the moon. We're going to send a starship to the moon. Four years out, they want to send people. Basically, if they can show that they can get starship to the moon by itself, without a crew, then at that point, when they actually have an uncrewed vehicle landing on the moon repeatedly, you know, not just like you know, one time and they go, oh, cool, we landed stuff on the moon. Now we're going to come back and then we're going to pick up some people and we're going to go again. That's not how it works. They have to do a bunch of missions to the moon, make sure that it's safe, and then have test pilots that are willing to go to the moon and be the next people on the moon before NASA. If they can beat NASA, dude, SpaceX is going to get so much private funding for that. Not just public, you know, not just, not just from work. People will want to invest. Multi-billionaires will see this as one of those things that changes humanity forever. How are they going to make money sending people to the moon? Uh, I don't know, make a lunar base. Make a lunar base and have companies do testing up there. That's the thing. Like, they can do anything they want. 
They can do anything. They can sell anything they want. If they go to the moon, they have a base on the moon. They can rent that out to people. And they can rent uh, trips around the moon, too, to orbit the moon. And it's happening. Like, there's a billionaire that's already signed up with SpaceX that wants to go for a trip around the moon. Yeah, they've already got it, man. They've already got somebody who wants to do amazing things with SpaceX. He's willing to put down his own money and launch himself in a gigantic rocket, gigantic rocket, to go around the moon. He wants to take a bunch of artists and wants to take like a bunch of good people around the moon, not just astronauts. They're going to have to go through training, and it's going to take years and years to get them through the training. So SpaceX needs to get on that, and they need to, get, they need to do that soon because uh, if they want to be on the other side of four years, like the end of the four-year bubble before NASA does it, well, they have to get their crap together, basically, and get those people trained. It's going to take a long time to train those people. NASA, it took NASA, you know, 10 plus years, 20 plus years to train people. They had test pilots, et cetera, et cetera. The Apollo missions, you know, all those missions before Apollo. They had test pilots, you know, test pilots were piloting rocket planes, basically. And then they, they trained them to become astronauts. It was a, like a haphazard kind of like, let's figure out this as we go old wild west style but you know they laid the groundwork for everything that spacex would be doing on these missions and if spacex is about to do these missions nasa said if you can do it you got our blessing we will give you everything you need anything you need any sort of resources you need in order to move forward with these launches so spacex Man, SpaceX is in a good spot, in a really good spot. And I think they can move forward, especially with Starhopper. If they get this test done on Friday properly and everything goes well, they're going to start building Starship and then everything's going to change. Everything's going to be a whole new world, you know, in a whole new universe, you know, a whole new solar system, I guess, because we're going to be moving around this place in Starships. And it's going to be different than what we've done before, which is a government sort of uh, government backed space travel, because that's not going to be happening as much anymore if we have private space travel. So, my friends, let me know on Twitter at Space News Pod what's going on. Also, make sure to follow this channel. You know, I have a bunch of followers. You know, we're working on 100 followers. We're at 95 followers right now. I need five more people to follow to get 100 followers. That's it. That's all I need. Nine, or five more followers. And then we'll have 100 followers. Pretty cool. I'm pretty stoked about that. I guess that's one of the things you need to do in order to get gold. Let's see what we need to do in order to get gold. Let's figure this out. To get gold, bronze. I'm already silver tier. Gold. Let's see, average 2,000 plus total live viewers per broadcast, broadcast at least twice a week on average. At least four public broadcasts available. Oh, dude, we can get gold. Let's do this. Let's do this together. So hit that follow button. Make sure you come back for the next show because I'm going to be doing a show. Uh, I do a show at, at least three times a week. 
right? Either it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or, you know, basically whenever uh, some news hits. So, saw another follow. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate you. Now, my friends, I have to take off for the day. If you want to hang out on Twitter, at Space News Pod, Facebook, at Space News Pod, you want to financially help out the show. Patreon.com slash Space News Podcast. You can go to spacenewspod.com for all the latest info about the show. I'm still working on that. That's going to be a thing in the next couple days that I'm working on, and it should be up to par uh, by Friday. So, my friends, thank you so much for all the support, and thank you for taking the time out of your day to spend it here with me on the Space News Pod. You're amazing. And... I will see you soon, my friends. Have a good day. Even better tomorrow. I forgot to thank um, Rachel Rick for Superheart. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're amazing. Now, see you guys later. Have a good one. Make sure to follow. We got this. We're in this together. Have a good day, everybody. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.